to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are. As Christians, we sometimes pride ourselves in our methodologies, position, and heritage. But we are about to see how the Lord has a way of using His servants to speak truth and give us real perspective of who we really are in the light of our Heavenly Father. Join us now as we continue our journey through Acts chapter 6 and 7 with Cheryl Broderson. Here is part two of Cheryl's message, Without Him We Can Do Nothing. There is that false doctrine that says God helps them that help themselves. And the truth is God helps those who cannot and will not help themselves. That's the truth. When we realize that we are nothing, that is when we can be everything God desires us to be. Now, maybe this week, as you were looking at Stefan, you said, I cannot be martyred. I could never do that. That guy is absolutely amazing. But you see, Stefan's secret was this. He knew he was nothing. And that made him a conduit of everything that God had, from grace to faith to power to wisdom to peace to vision to glory Because he realized he was nothing. Stephen is introduced to us in Acts chapter 6. And he comes to prominence because of a deficit. There are these Hellenist widows who are being neglected. Now, Hellenist widows were Greek-speaking women. And in Israel, the Israelites were divided into two people, the Hellenist and the Hebrews. Now, the Hebrews were those who kept to the Hebrew culture, and the Hellenists were those who embraced Greek culture. After Alexander died, Alexander the Great died, the whole conquered world, the Greek Empire, was divided up between his four generals. And two of those generals, Seleucus and Ptolemy, fought over Israel again and again and again. Ptolemy was in Egypt, and Egypt was heavily influenced by Greek culture. Seleucid was Greek, and he wanted to influence Israel with Greek culture. Well, a Seleucid king that came to power was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And what he did is he actually began to persecute any Jews who did not adhere to Greek culture. So many of the Jews, in order to spare their lives, the lives of their family, they embraced Greek culture. They embraced the Olympics, and they came, and they uh, built an Olympic forum in Jerusalem, which the Hebrew Jews were so upset about. And so there became this conflict, this, this civil unrest among the Jews, whether you were a Hellenist or whether you were a true Hebrew. The Hebrews were the ones who resisted, were persecuted during the entire reign of 
and Tychicus Epiphanes. So what happened is, when the Romans took over, there was still this division. But now, both Hellenists and Jews begin to embrace Jesus Christ. But this rift came into even the Christian faith. And so, as the disciples, who are Hebrews, are confronted with this problem that the Hellenist Jews, and it doesn't say felt they were being neglected, but they were being neglected, they said, all right, I want you to choose to seven men from among you. Choose seven Hellenists. That way you can be sure that there's no prejudice. And that way, as we're embracing these Hellenist believers, you will see that there's no prejudice. We're willing to take them in. We're willing to accept them. So of these seven men that were chosen, Stephen was one of those. Now also, the apostles realized that they couldn't do um, all of the ministry. That there was a special call on their life. And the call on their life was to teach and to study the word of God and to pray. They realized that they needed to give themselves completely over this. And yet, there was a need for administration, this other call, this other gifting. And so they found these seven men, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicano, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and they prayed over these men, and they laid their hands on them. They actually gave them apostolic authority. Now, it's interesting to note that the qualifications for these men, even though they were going to be administrators or servants or deacons, was they needed a good reputation, they needed to be full of the Holy Spirit, and they needed to exercise wisdom. No matter what the call, they needed to have wisdom, good reputation, and be full of the Holy Spirit. Didn't matter what the call was. If the call is giving yourself to the word of God in prayer, you need to be full of the Holy Spirit. If the call is serving others, you need to be full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation and wisdom. In other words, what is it saying? It's saying that we all need to be full of the Holy Spirit, good reputation and wisdom, no matter what the call is in our life. If you're called to be a mother, guess what? You need to have a good reputation, be full of the Holy Spirit, and you need a lot of wisdom because you need to know who really did it. (laughs) But every call needs this. So they prayed again over these seven men, laid their hands on them, this transfer of authority. And it was a great solution. And it was a blessed solution because we find that the word of God spread, the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came to faith. But Stephen distinguished himself even among these seven because the Spirit was on him, and we're told that he's full of faith. What does that mean to be full of faith? It means that Stephen knew he was nothing and Jesus was everything. That's really what it is to be full of faith. It means Stephen was not dependent on himself, dependent on others, dependent on monuments. He was dependent on God alone. 
You see, we really get more faith when three things happen. And here's the first, when we lose faith in others. When we realize that people are always going to disappoint us and we stop trusting people. Secondly, we get greater faith when we realize (laughs) that circumstances are always going to let us down. That they're always going to fail us. That that opportunity, like, oh, if this just comes together and that happens, when we realize that our plans will always fail us, we're, we're, more, we're more in the structure of faith. But finally, when we lose faith in ourselves, when we realize we cannot trust ourselves, when we recognize our own weaknesses, our own inabilities, we are so weak, we get stopped by red lights. And we're late. Even if we're early, we're late. When we realize the weaknesses of our humanity, we then turn and we have the potential to become full of faith. When our reliance and our hope is on Jesus alone. I was thinking about this, and it's a really bad illustration, but it's a really good illustration. But it's really bad because it's a gambling illustration. Because the idea is when you put all your chips on Jesus and you let the wheel spin, when you say, you know what? I'm putting everything, my whole investment of my life and everything I am and have, I'm putting it on Jesus. That's when we're full of faith. And that's when we become conduits. That's when we get the right perspective. That's when we can do anything and everything that God calls us to do. We're also told that Stephen was full of power, but I want you to know that the full of power is the result of being full of faith. We're told he did great wonders and signs among the people. I want you to know that's because he was full of faith, that he realized it's all about God. We're told that he had irresistible wisdom. They could not resist the wisdom with which he spoke. Because he realized it was not about Stephen or Stephen's eloquence, but it was all about God. And we're told he was filled with the Spirit. Because when we realize it's all about Jesus and not about us, what do you crave? More of Jesus. More of Jesus. Less of me. I want to be nothing so Jesus can be everything. And he was filled with the Spirit, and he was a true conduit for Jesus to work through. Now we're told that these men from the synagogue of freedmen got in a dispute with Stephen. In fact, the truth is they didn't like what he was telling them. Because you know what he was telling them? He was telling them, you're sinners. You need Jesus. He was telling them that the law could not put them in good grace with God. No matter how much they obeyed it, adhered to it, how many rituals or regulations they kept, it would not put them in good grace with God. And they realized that Stephen had something they didn't have. Stephen had power. Stephen was doing signs and wonders. Stephen had irresistible wisdom that they could not refute. These men obviously took great pride in their heritage. This is the only place we ever hear about this synagogue. And I've looked up this synagogue, and truth be told, commentators don't really know who these men were except for they're from notable places. And obviously they took pride in where they came from 
and who they were, that they were freed men. They gave themselves a title. Oh, whenever we have a title, we're in trouble, don't we? I belong to the, you know, YMCA. I guess it's YWCA, excuse me. But, you know, we're, whenever we take pride, you know, we try to like, this is what I belong to. We try to take pride. These are my people. That, that pride. And these men had pride. Obviously, they're influential because they had access to the elders and the scribes. But they, we're told they were absolutely enraged at Stephen. It wasn't that they just didn't like him. They were enraged. They were out of control. So they secretly induced men to falsely accuse Stephen of speaking against Moses and God. Here are these men. We're of the synagogue of freedmen. We keep rules and regulations and rituals, but we're going to break them to get this guy. We're going to go against everything that we stand for and talk about. We're going to lie. We're going to bring in false witnesses because we cannot resist his wisdom. We're told that they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. They actually created chaos and a riot. They seized him. They took him before the council. They brought these false charges against Stephen, saying he doesn't cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, the temple, that he speaks blasphemous words against the law, that he says Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses. And as they're falsely accusing Stephen, because Stephen is just so about Jesus, they look at him and he's radiant and he's got the face of an angel. It's not phasing him. Oh, we're women. Everything phases us. I want to be so unfazed. I'm praying, Lord, make me unfazed by the accusations, by the slander. Don't let me hear the barbs. And it's almost as if Stephen is not even hearing it. It's just, wow, they really don't want to know they're sinners. He's all right. And then they tell him to give, to give a defense. All right, speak, defend yourself. But you know what? He doesn't defend himself against the charges. Instead, he's going to take away every single prop that these men have built their houses on. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, He who hears my word and does it. I'll tell you who he's like. He's like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came and the floods came and the wind blew vehemently against it, it stood But he who hears my word and does not do it, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a man who built his house on the sand. And when the storms and the floods and the wind comes, the house fell and great was its destruction. So he's going to show them the false foundation of their house. And he's going to show them that life is about what God has done and only about what God has done. 
He begins first with there's these men that they pride themselves in. They pride themselves, we're the children of Abraham. Remember to Jesus in John chapter 8? They said, we're not born of fornication. We're the children of Abraham. And Jesus said, if you were truly the children of Abraham, you would not persecute me. Because Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it. But they, would, they took pride in Abraham. So Stephen begins with Abraham. And he says about Abraham, Abraham was not Jewish. Surprise, surprise, surprise. The father of Israel was a Chaldean. He was an Iraqi. He was a Chaldean. And you know what? He was living in a pagan country among pagan people until what? Until God called him. He would have remained a pagan. He would have remained in a pagan country if not for the call of God. And then we find that God called him out. God preserved him. God gave him a promise. God told Abraham what would happen, and God did it all. We find in Abraham's life, it was not about Abraham. It was about God, because Abraham was nothing. Then we come to Joseph, and he's saying about Joseph, if God hadn't intervened with Joseph... Not only would Joseph have been murdered, but the patriarchs would have all died. There would have been no preservation of Egypt or the Hebrews had it not been for God's intervention. Here's the patriarchs, those people that you want to pride yourself in. And you know what they did? They tried to kill their brother and chose instead to sell him into slavery. They tried to get rid of the very one that God would raise up to preserve the Jewish nation. You know what he's saying to them? You're your own worst enemy. You're your own worst enemy. And then he said, and this Joseph that you pride yourself in, he was forgotten. He was temporary. The Egyptians forgot about him. It didn't bring any lasting respect from those outside of Israel. And then he goes to Moses and he says, Moses would have died by the hand of Pharaoh if God hadn't preserved him. And then we see that Moses was actually rejected by the very people that he was to deliver. When he thought he was something and went to his people to present himself at 40 years old, a strapping man, educated with the finest Egyptian education and deigned to step down to his people for their deliverance, they said, get out of town. We don't want you. When Moses tried to do it in his own strength, he ended up being a murderer. He ended up disqualifying himself from the job. And the Hebrews said to him, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses had to flee to the wilderness. You see, God has to show those that he's going to use that they're nothing. He has to break them and make them nothing before he can make them something. And that's what we see in the life of Abraham and Joseph and Moses. They all had to be broken before they could be used by God. 
And Moses, when he came back at 80, broken, working for his father-in-law as a shepherd, which was an abomination to the Egyptians, and he comes back to Egypt to deliver the people of God. God uses him, but he speaks to these people and he said, there's going to be a greater prophet than me, and him you will hear. So Stephen is saying Moses pointed to something superior. He pointed to God. Then Stephen talked to them about the law. Again, they prided themselves. We keep rules and rituals and regulations. And he tells them first that the law, in verses 38 through 39, the law was not given by Moses. The law came by angels. It was given by God on Mount Sinai. It is higher than Moses. Moses broke the law. He tells them that their forefathers, when they heard the law, they didn't like it. They rejected it. They refused to obey it. Because you see, these people thought possession of the law was enough. We were given the law. You see, even even in Moses' time, well, we've got the law. It doesn't matter if we keep it. We've got it written on stones, and it's ours, so we're superior. And he said, no, not only does that law not come by your man Moses, it's God's law. None of you ever kept it. And being in possession of the law only makes you greater debtors to the law because you know what you should do, and you can't do it, and you don't do it. So the law, he takes away the prop of their patriarchs that they're trusting in. He takes away the prop of trusting in regulations and rules and rituals. Like, well, I'm better than everybody else because I do this. I butter my bread on both sides. No, there's no ritual. It's not how you pray. You know, let's just take it to our, our level I know people that pride themselves in the way they pray. I know a woman that prided herself that she used Hebrew words in her prayer, so she thought her prayers were better than everybody else's. I use English. You know, I think the best prayer in the world is the prayer that says, help. You know, remember the two men, the Pharisee, and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. I'm not an extortionist. I'm not a... You know, I keep the law. And Jesus told us that man was not justified. That man was not heard. But the man who smote his chest, the tax collector, and said, Oh, God, forgive me. I don't deserve any of your grace, any of your goodness. Jesus said, God heard that prayer. But even as Christians, sometimes we pride ourselves in the methodology of prayer we use. I was talking to one man, and he says, Do you pray through the temple? No. I run straight into the throne room throw myself down before the throne of grace and say, help! That's how most of my prayers go. It's not pretty. I'm a desperate woman. I know I need Jesus. And I know nothing else will avail. Remember Elijah, Elisha? Remember the woman who was, um, she built a house for Elisha. And so he told her that the Lord was going to give her a son and he prayed for her and she had a son and then the son was out in the field working with his father and the son had a headache and he suddenly died and the woman put the son up on Elisha's bed and then she went 
She saddled a donkey, and she was headed towards Elisha. And the servant said, what are you doing? And she said, out of my way, nothing's wrong. Her husband said, what's wrong? She said, nothing, out of my way. She gets to the servant, Gehaz- uh, the servant of Elisha, and he says, what's wrong, Gehazi? And she says, nothing, get out of my way. And she has to get straight to Elisha. And when she finds Elisha, she falls on her face, and she said, why did you give me a son? I love that. She doesn't go, excuse me, I've got a problem. She's like, that's some of the best prayers. Perhaps you are discouraged today because you had imagined that God would use you in a greater way than where you are presently. But God has to show those that he's going to use that they are nothing and make them nothing before he can make them something. When we reach this place in our Christian walk, we will be like Stephen, full of faith, power, and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study with Cheryl Broderson. If you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply visit our website at graciouswords.com or call 1-800-733-6443 and refer to it by name, which is, Without Him We Can Do Nothing. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, Cheryl will complete her teaching in Acts chapter 6 and 7 with her message, Without Him We Can Do Nothing. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.